At the December sitting at Tynwald, Enterprise Minister Laurie Hooper will be looking for support for a new multi-million pound island infrastructure scheme which is designed to stimulate and accelerate the development of privately owned and unoccupied brownfield sites. Ministerial promises relating to brownfield sites have come and gone almost as frequently as the tide on Douglas Shore, so why is this Council of Ministers so sure it will deliver where so many governments in the past have failed? Cabinet Office Minister Kate Lord Brennan explained in September the Canon government's plan. Yes, and I think it's something that's been talked about for a long time to the importance, but the, the difference is now um, is that the government has absolutely got the focus and got its act together in terms of the specific programme measures that would help achieve that through the Built Environment Reform Programme. Um, the difference with that has been centrally coordinated, led by Cabinet Office, um, you know, coordinated across government both in the development and you know ultimately how it be delivered and it you know it's got a budget attached to it in order to to do that and address a whole range of issues that are really um been holding things up holding people back just want to kind of unlock the opportunities within those specific actions and uh, you know it's really good that something that started at the beginning of the administration from a sort of political priority and aspiration from the chief minister um when we were talking about the island plan is has got to the stage where you know that's all um fully proned out funded we've got a clear set of actions for a two-year reform program and then today we've been able to announce importantly the launch of a major applications process in planning um, the creation of a customer charter and also getting out that feedback um, or asking people for feedback about the planning process to try and address some of the issues that, that you know we hear quite often as MHKs uh, we hear about those things so um, it's, it's good that we've got to that point really and I think that that and the panel that we had um, provided some really really interesting discussion and being no doubt there is real commitment on this from government. I asked Minister Hooper whether this scheme wasn't just an excuse to hand over large chunks of cash to wealthy developers. So that's something we really want to try and avoid. So the scheme is deliberately quite limited. It's restricted to sites that are already identified in uh, planning terms as unoccupied urban sites. So we're limiting it very specifically to uh, sites that are key sites. So it's not a blanket approach. Uh, And the other thing that's key about this is we're opening it in a round. Uh, So what that means is we're going to open the scheme for applications. There'll be an application period. Then they'll all be assessed against each other as well as against the scheme criteria. Uh, So it may very well turn out that at the end of the first round, we don't actually award anything. Uh, And the reason for that is we want to make sure we are supporting the right investments in the right place. So there'll be uh, quite a lot of criteria around the social or economic benefit as well as the visual amenity, residential benefits of any particular development. Uh, And uh, really the intention is to look at those sites that haven't been developed for a very long time, uh, largely because it's not financially viable to develop them. And another key part of the scheme is that all of these uh, applications will require some kind of assessment of financial viability. So if the scheme is viable without government support, uh, there's no chance of government support being offered. That's the way the scheme is is designed to work. Uh, So really, it's about saying to developers, well, actually, what is stopping you developing a particular site? And is there a way that some government support could help turn that derelict site that's been empty for maybe a decade into something that is much more usable much more benefit to the community and I suppose that's the the, the starting point really that uh, uh, where I should have the first question I should have asked is uh, why is this necessary I mean um, what why 
Have developers said, oh, Minister, if only we had another 25% funding from the government, uh, we would definitely proceed and, and develop these sites? So there's there's an element, I think, of, of that out there where developers are prioritising other sites. That's what it boils down to. So if I, if I own a brownfield site and a greenfield site, uh, the greenfield site will be cheaper to develop, easier to develop, and I'll probably make a greater profit margin. So there's no incentive for me to try and develop that brownfield site. What we're trying to do is, is this is another one of the, the pieces of the puzzle to was levelling that playing field to say, well, actually, maybe develop the brainfield site first because this is a, essentially a time-limited offer. You know, this is on the table now. It might not be there in six months' time. We may not do another round. Uh, and so if you do own these sites, this is almost like us opening the door and saying, if you think you do need some support to help develop these key sites, now is your opportunity. Uh, and the other thing about this scheme is it will be very much tied to development actually taking place. So uh, this isn't going to be one of those, let's put some money in and no development ever happens. Actually, it's very much about spades in the ground, buildings going up. Uh, so if we assess something as being worth investing in from a government perspective, we're going to expect to see it actually developed. And Andrew, uh, I mean, your role obviously as policy manager, yeah, you must be uh, tearing your hair out, out with something like this because... It, it must be a very difficult scheme to actually uh, to write in such a way as to be meaningful and useful to a potential developer, but also reassure all those uh, watching public eyes who will say, uh, you know, you, you, must, you mustn't be just handing over millions of pounds worth of public uh, or taxpayers' uh, funds uh, just to, to developers who can probably afford to do without it. How do you manage to, 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 to sort of square that circle? Uh, that's an interesting question, Phil. It's, it's certainly a challenge, um, but I think, I think that the priority is kind of in direction the department is driven by uh, wanting to see something happen on these sites. I mean, you know, brownfield site development isn't, isn't just a challenge, you know, specific to the Isle of Man. Um, it's a challenge in many cities and, and areas of the UK and further afield, but, but we have had these sites laying dormant for some time. Uh, indeed, there's been a number of Timbal Select Committees, two fairly latterly ones, one specifically around unoccupied urban sites, one around the financing of, of, of uh, you know, um, regeneration and development. Um, the department itself has commissioned reports, and, and consistently there is a challenge where brownfield site development is more costly and problematic for developers, be that private sector or public sector, indeed, um, because of the cost of preparing the land, limited site access, contamination. Um, the, the, you know, there are a series of challenges, and finances aren't the only one. Um, there's significant work ongoing around broader policy in, in other departments as well, and DEFA and the built environment reform. Um, however, putting you know putting some financial assistance out there, it, it was one of the key things identified as a potential solution. Um, so this scheme aims to fill that gap. Um, it will be a delicate balance. It is going to be a rigorous process, but we're also being open with it as a department. We are coming out with a scheme specifically designed and are obviously taking it to Timwell for for debate. And and in terms of, I mean, the, the sorts of sites that we're we're thinking about here. Maybe the minister, I mean, you could answer on this one. Um, I mean, the the obvious one is the the Lord Street site, isn't it? That um, several um, ministers, and I, I I would include myself uh, within their number, have said, we've finally cracked it. We've we've got a developer, and it's all uh, guns blazing. We're going ahead with this particular development, and then uh, something stumbles along the way and the next thing is we're back to the back to the drone board uh, uh, is this government 
really confident? Because I, I do detect a, a, a very good level of confidence amongst uh, ministers that uh, you are finally going to crack this perennial uh, nut. I think we're going into this, uh, I think, with our eyes open. Uh, this may not be the solution. It may not be uh, effective. You know, it's we have to try things, I think, sometimes. So with the intention, I think, with publishing this scheme and taking it to Timwald to an extent is to try and shake the trees a bit and say, actually, OK, if, if we do put some funding on the table, what is going to come forward? Uh, you know, the sites that are listed are the ones that planning have already identified through the area plan for the east as, as the unoccupied urban sites. There is definitely the potential to add sites in the northwest and south as well onto that list uh, for the scheme. Uh, and those sites are public. They're all, all listed on, on that public register. So there's no, uh, there's no secret here as to which sites will be talking about uh, but ultimately it'll have to be up to the the owners of those sites or the developers to come forward and say this is what I'm proposing to do and actually is it going to be a development that is considered by government to be of such value that it's worth us supporting that that development so we'll be prioritizing you know uh, leisure facilities or residential properties or whatever it happens to be that is probably in the right space for, for whatever the site happens to be um, there will be sites, I think, that will be more difficult uh, to to support uh, just because of the nature of the site. I think Lord Street may very well be, be one of those. It's a private site. It's quite far down the road with its with its plans, as far, as far as I, I last heard. So there'll be, uh, I think, depending on what has already gone on on some of these sites, that will probably be a factor as well because, uh, like you said earlier, we don't want government here to be a new money for old rope, essentially. We don't want government to be saying, well, this is just free cash for someone that's already going to be making uh, considerable profits or, or what have you on their site. This is about looking at those sites that aren't viable and seeing how we can help. Um, on the one side of the fence in the public sector, we have the Manx Development Corporation looking at how we develop public sector sites because some of those sites on that register are public sector. They're owned by the government. Uh, and actually, this is kind of the private sector equivalent to say, well, we can't get the development corporation in to solve everybody's problems, but actually, how can we encourage the developers who own those privately owned sites to come forward with their own plans and try and accelerate some of their uh, their intentions? So it's, it's a sort of a, a two-sided approach, I think, to dealing with the, the regeneration problem. And like you say, it may be that this, we open around, we, maybe we don't get any applications, or maybe the applications we do get in aren't, aren't quite up to scratch. Um, be that as it may, you know that I think sometimes you just have to try these things, see what happens, see what comes out, and if there are reasons why what we get forward doesn't quite work, if we need to tweak the scheme, if we need to change some of the the things that are on offer, those things are definitely uh, the way to go. Uh, but I don't think we should be afraid of trying. And and Andrew, I mean the the the, the whole purpose or the whole reason that your department was set up initially as the which one is it the de Department for Economic Development and now uh, the Department for Enterprise. Um, was to to help uh, government actually be able to communicate with the private sector and make things like uh, these uh, developments of large empty uh, holes in the midst of uh, particularly in the midst of Douglas but uh, other other towns around the island as well. Uh, the, the, you know, this, this was supposed to be the drive of the department, and yet here we are, some twelve years in, and. Uh, we haven't really had much by way of success, have we? So, so in ter sorry, in terms of, um, uh, the, you know, the department has provided, uh, operates financial support schemes across an, a, a range of sectors and, ha and has done for, for many years. Um, and, and that largely has been focused around jobs and job, cre you know, and job creation and new jobs to the island. I think that the, the, the challenge when it comes to unoccupied urban sites and developing those is it's not always necessarily about employment land in the traditional sense. So this isn't going to be about putting factories on it with engineering that's going to create 20, 30 jobs. 
but, but the development of these sites will make the island a more vibrant and sustainable place to 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 to, to want to live, to want to to invest, to want to work. So it's arguably been slightly outside of the, the department's focus previously. However, what, what we have now is a clear economic strategy that has some very bold ambitions in it that talks about driving new jobs. But by, but to do that, we have to be a vibrant, sustainable place. Um, you know, our, our capital city in particular perhaps has to be an appealing and vibrant place for a younger demographic. That leads naturally on to, you know, look at some of the areas now that, 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 that are, are unattractive, um, but could are really valuable sites to unlock. So, so the the purpose of this scheme and and all the policy development that's going on uh, and will take you know take place over the next few years is to unlock the potential of these sites and try and accelerate that. And yes, ten million pounds is is a large sum of money when you but but viewed against the scale of the size of the cost of some of these developments, it's actually relatively small. I mean, some of these will be multi multi tens of millions of pounds developments. Um, so. Whilst the headline is 25% support, actually, what really ultimately provided through the scheme is successful is the is the minimum amount of support available just to tip the viability of those sites over. Um, that that's what it's about. You know, ultimately that pot is quite small in relation to the size of the of the challenge we have ahead. So it's about leveraging private sector investment, which is referenced very heavily in the economic strategy. And and then I, I suppose. Uh I'm guessing, Andrew, you'd be the best person to, to ask about this in terms of the detail of the policy. Um, how 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 will these things be assessed? I mean, what what does the what's the actual scheme that's going to Timmel? What does it say? What does it describe? Who who are the ultimate decision makers and 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 all of that? So the way the decisions will be made will be through our existing structures. So it's a DFE scheme. So it will be ultimately a a DFE and Treasury backed decision. Um, the way that our funding models work in government is everything over a certain amount has to go to the council ministers. So it's quite likely that this scheme will end up being a council minister's decision simply because of the value of some of these investments. They're quite significant, uh, and that governance has to be quite robust because we will be talking about significant investment of public funds. Um, in terms of how the sites will be assessed, the departments, all the department schemes actually are, are guidance-based. So the scheme itself is quite, uh, the legislative scheme is, it gives you the power to make things in guidance. The guidance has been drafted, it will be published, it'll be publicly available so anyone who wants to apply can have a look at the guidance and understand if they think they would qualify and obviously then reach out to the department to ask questions and get some support in terms of how to, to follow through that application process. Uh, the guidance sets out a number of uh, criteria uh, around uh, the kind of things we would expect to be seeing and what sort of developments would be more likely to get support than others. Obviously every site is different, so what works on one site might not work on another, but those are about the quality of the development, the potential exchequer benefits, because don't forget every time there is a construction project there will be tax and VAT and NI generated from that, that piece of work. Uh, there's uh, criteria around sustainability, around if it's residential properties, how many, what quality, whether they're first-time buyers, um, in terms of the company themselves, I think there may even be criteria built into our schemes around whether they employ apprentices, how much social benefit there is from the development. There's there's all sorts of it's a it's a very complex piece of work, uh, because ultimately what we're trying to do is give the developers the best possible opportunity to say this development is the right thing for the Isle of Man and to then uh, apply for that help. Uh, but there is no uh, black and white on this, uh, and that's the, that's I think why coming back to your, one of your earlier questions, why does government struggle to make progress here in the last decade or so? It's because it's difficult. It's complex. Uh, you know, there is no one right answer. This isn't a machine. You, 
can put an application through and a computer says yes, computer says no, each of these will have to be considered really on their on their merits uh, against the other things that come in as part of the, the first round and actually whether or not they do tick the box for, for what government is trying to achieve here. So it, it's going to be, a, a, I think Andy said earlier, it's going to be difficult I think to, to get this right uh, and that's why there will be those multiple layers I think of governance because ultimately the more people that have had input into some of these decisions I think the better the decision will be at the end of it. And, and one, uh, I mean, there's a couple of things that I'm, I, I want to explore a bit more uh, with, with you on that. I mean, the, the first one is one that, in my experience as, as a minister, um, was one of the stumbling blocks. And that was, um, well, I can think of one particularly controversial site that we were looking at. And um, at one point... I think there were nine ministers, including the chief minister, and all of us had stated conflicted opinions and the planning matter had to be called in, which was basically yeah. considered by council of ministers. None of the ministers were in a position to actually uh, be able to make decisions on the planning because they had all been engaged with other decisions associated with the development. Um, so, I mean, you've just said that decisions on the funding are going to be called in to council or considered and they, make they the, could be depending yeah. on the value so if, if the value is if it's only half a million that will probably be dealt with by treasury if it's three million it'll clearly have to go through council it's a really good point to make though um this will not this doesn't guarantee planning approval that's the other thing mm -hmm. to bear in mind just because the dfe or treasury have approved uh, funding uh, to s support doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get planning approval. That's a whole separate process. That's a public process, and it has to be separate. I don't think this is about uh, government ramming through uh, things uh, in in violation of any of our existing processes and procedures. So there is a there is definitely that that still needs to go through. Uh, it's a good question to ask because you're right. There will necessarily be people that are conflicted, whether it's a constituency matter, whether they've publicly stated views on it before, uh, and obviously if Comin uh, are the ones making a decision around funding, are we then invariably conflicted if we do decide to try and call something in around the planning? process this is why it's complex i think and again for me this is why sometimes having more people uh, have visibility on it reduces the risk of that conflict if you've got the department for enterprise having a view there's four members uh, plus myself in there if treasury have a view there's obviously three members plus the minister there and then if it does go to council it's unlikely that every single person there is going to be conflicted and if we are then we'll have to deal with that there are processes in place de to delegate decision making to others to, for specific reasons so i'm not too worried about it um, but it is something we're very alive to in terms of making sure the governance around this is quite robust and the other element uh, that i i noted uh, in your earlier answer was uh, a certain amount of vagueness as to whether the guidance will be developed after the scheme is approved by Timwald or, or is it going to Timwald to be approved? Uh, or I think Andy has a copy of the guidance with him here. I know the guidance Excellent. has been drafted. Uh, it had to be because obviously when we went to council of ministers, when we went to treasury and council of ministers with this, they needed to understand what the guidance was uh, before they could approve it. I mean, I wouldn't feel comfortable approving a scheme like this that didn't have the guidance associated. Um, so that's there at the moment. It's been drafted. It will be shared with Timwald members in advance of the, the sitting so that they have a complete picture on what the scheme looks like as well. 
Um, I'm not sure whether it's being published on the Register of Business or not. That that may happen. Um, but ultimately, the dis- people making the decision around do we want to approve this, I think they need to see the guidance. Uh, the guidance itself isn't Timwald approved. It is written by the department. And so what we will do, I think one of the reasons we haven't published it publicly is because we need to see what Timwald thinks. And I think if Timwald gives us a very clear steer during the debate on this must be a factor, this mustn't be a factor, you have to consider this, obviously we'll have to revise the guidance and refresh it in line with what, what Timwald is kind of steering us towards. Uh, but no, the guidance is definitely there in draft form right now in terms of helping us develop the policy out and making sure members have a complete picture on what it is they're going to be asked to vote on really uh, in December Timwald. I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> I was a little alarmed when you, when you seemed to be suggesting that maybe this, the guidance would follow at a later stage. Um, in, in terms of that then, I mean, Andrew, maybe you could uh, tell us what are the hard and fast elements of the scheme? You know, I think the Minister has talked about it having to be uh, flexible enough to allow for uh, different circumstances, but equally Treasury doesn't allow uh, schemes to go to Timwald if they're too flexible, so they need to have some hard and fast uh, rules in. And, and what would those those sorts of things be? Yeah. So, so the, and, and the minister said before, so that the scheme provides the enabling powers and legislation, as, as you know, Phil. And, and and those those things that are set are about the location of the sites being included in the unoccupied urban sites register. There is an element of discretion built into that because that register may change, and, and sites may come on in the north and the east and the west that aren't yet published yet. Um, but, but you know the the focus clearly is on those sites initially, um, and probably you know, those are the ones that people most associate with. And being Lower Douglas area being on that list, and I, and I should say, as a former member for Russian, you didn't mention the South there. Oh, I apologise. Absolute <laughs> slip, Phil. Of course, the South. I was uh, sure it was. Just uh, it, was a... it was going to be next. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. don't mention the South, Mr. Morehouse. Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, as I said, the, the 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 upper limit of twenty five percent support, but to stress again that that is a that is a very much again an enabling provision. Um, the the support the, the any financial support that's provided as part of ultimately any final decision after the rounds of applications will be the minimum requirement ultimately to tip that balance, and that will be assessed, and there'll be professional expertise on on that process as well as departmental as well. Um, and then in terms of what 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 the assistance can be used for in, t- in terms of um, it's all around actually the development and the value add it's not about land purchasing it's not about uh, you know holding on to significant assets or that it's about the stuff that actually will create the exchequer benefit the the, the overriding um, policy principle ultimately is that any support will be will be significantly outweighed by the exchequer benefit that's delivered by that project um, and on top of that now, with the extra extra sort of emphasis of the economic strategies around the social benefit that's, that, that can be delivered by these developments as well. So as I, it's, it's, a, it's a slight departure from the usual department schemes around, around jobs and direct employment to, to broader social and economic benefit. And how can we actually make our built environment and our really key sites that can be enablers for, for, for you know, you see it in other areas. That these, these key sites can be enablers for much broader regeneration and ultimately leverage significant private sector investment as well um so i think i may have covered it there there, there's there's some obviously the guidance will set out in more detail um that will be published but the reason it isn't published is it has been shared with timble members but as the minister said you know we may we we do listen to feedback from from, from timble debates and there are things in there that we need to put in to provide additional assurance that perhaps we haven't covered off sufficiently then i think you know the the the, the minister of the department will absolutely consider that before we publish the, the final guidance 
You're listening to Enterprise Minister Laurie Hooper and Andrew Stewart, Director of Policy at DFE. So in the past, when schemes like this have, have come to Tinmold, um, ministers have had um, difficult jobs trying to defend themselves or defend decisions taken because companies that had been set up overnight specifically to develop a particular thing or to run a particular business had no proven track record because they'd just been established for the purpose of this particular thing, uh, ended up being given various grants. And usually if it had ended up in Tinwald, something had gone wrong along the way. Um, so, so presumably that sort of thing can still happen, but there's a lot of thought that goes on behind uh, actually deciding um, whether someone has the financial nous and wherewithal to actually uh, deliver a project. So it's much less likely that would happen uh, with the enterprise schemes uh, more broadly, but this scheme as well, largely because those uh, schemes usually require payment in arrears. So the department doesn't actually hand over any cash until the things we have said need to happen happen. So with the standard schemes, that is, you've employed five people, great, here's, here's a portion of the grant we, we told you you could have. With this scheme, it will be very similar, that actually the money you won't get paid up front, it will be based probably on milestones, you know, have you actually built the first floor of the building and incurred those costs that you've claiming uh, expenditure for. So it, I think the risk there, which I think you quite rightly highlight, that you could end up handing money over in advance and then nothing happens, I think the risk of that happening is very low because of the way the scheme is being structured. Um, the intention is very much to encourage development to happen uh, and uh, the other side of it I think is uh, the scheme makes some quite specific requirements around disclosable beneficial ownership so we need to know who the company is you know they need to disclose who it is that, that actually is behind that uh, as well as you know things like the financial so uh, sourcing do they have the money is it going to be a viable development uh, so the company that may actually be in receipt of the grant could be a, an SPV uh, specifically set up for the purpose of developing a site but actually they won't be the ones that are really uh, holding the can as it were for funding and development and all the rest of it so I think we're, we're reasonably comfortable I think we've got enough safeguards in that is something no doubt that will get tested I think when we get to Timwald uh, we'll, I'm expecting to get questions on actually how are you going to safeguard the public purse here clearly that is also why uh, from a, an actual grant perspective the Treasury will be involved in, in that kind of decision making process and as will ultimately the Council of Ministers to make sure I think that uh, we do have those kind of checks and balances to make sure that we've got that robust process that says are we safeguarding uh, the public purse and actually the exchequer benefit we're hoping to see out of these developments which will or should be uh, far in excess I think of the money that's put on the table is that actually going to materialise. And Andrew I mean part of the problem I think in, in the uh, well across government at the moment is that you have officers who are um, well it's fair to say quite thinly spread and struggling to, to manage to complete all the tasks that are before them. Um, is there a, going to be a specific uh, officer team to, to deal with this particular um, scheme? So the enterprise support team within the Department for Enterprise is the the team that will be administering the scheme. Um, they are, you know, very experienced in, in administering a whole, a, you know, a whole raft of, of business um, development schemes and, and business improvement schemes. Um, so that's where the in-house expertise is. Um, but, but we realise that this scheme is a bit different. And going back to my point earlier on, it is going to be a challenge to administer. Um, the, the purpose of opening the scheme in rounds means that there is enough time to give them to get applications in. They also then can be considered in the round in totality, looking at them with a bit more of a strategic kind of fit uh, analysis. You know, do they fit the broader strategic plan uh, and, the, and align to the economic strategy? 
But then we've also incorporated the ability to, to, to bring in some additional expertise specifically with construction experience, so whether that's a quantity surveyor or independent, somebody independent who can look at a, a plan, a business, not just a business plan, but a development plan as well with that expertise and assist the existing team. So uh, I'm confident we've got it in, you know, resources lined up and, and, and thought about during the scheme. But again, a lot of it will be very much dependent on what we what we get, whether we get one application or whether we get 25 applications. We uh, may be calling on the minister for some additional resource if, uh, <laughs> if that's the case. And, and of course, the, the other thing, the other charge, whether it's fair or, or unfair, is I'll, I'll leave you to, to answer, uh, that's often lev- levied against government is... Uh, uh, government's idea of a simple, easy-to-use scheme is not the same as as, as that of the private sector. Um, so is this going to be, or is it de- devised in such a way that it is going to be a relatively simple process for a developer to, to, to actually do, or is it going to be much more complicated? I think the short answer to that, Phil, is we're expecting these to be complex applications. You know, anyone that's looking to, to do a development, and like Andy's already said earlier, we're expecting these developments to be multi-million pound developments that come forward. Uh, they are not simple processes in and of themselves. And so whilst I think the process of getting the information to the department should be quite simple, and as I've already said, the enterprise support team are very good at being open and engaging with, with people and walking them through the process, providing support and guidance where they can but I don't think this is a simple application process simply because of the nature of what it is we're talking about here so I am expecting these to be uh, quite complex applications I'm expecting these to be quite complex proposals even and that's where your question about resourcing is, is really valid because if it turns out that we've got quite a lot of these complex applications in we may have to step up the resource to actually assess them uh, and make sure that we are doing them justice if we've only got a handful of them in obviously that that is a lot simpler so yes the application process will be as easy as we can make it uh, but I'm um, not expecting the uh, this to be a straightforward piece simply because it is complex and there is quite a lot of money being asked uh, for and talked about here in terms of public money as well so it, it is going to be uh, a, a challenging process i think for for people to apply to actually make sure that they're clear on what they're they're asking for what it is they're putting forward and then from the department's perspective how we then assess that uh, there will probably be quite a lot of information required as well so uh, uh, I think the commitment is we'll make it as easy as we can, uh, but we have to go into this with our eyes open. This is, you know, development is quite complex. These are difficult sites. That's the reason we're doing this in the first place, because some of these sites are difficult to develop. So I think it will be uh, complex for people to, to get their applications in. But equally, on the other side of this table, we should be dealing with experienced developers, people who have done this before. They know about property development. They know what they're doing. They should know what they're getting into. So I'm, I'm not too concerned at this stage that that will be off-putting to them. And another of the hurdles that I've, I have witnessed in, in my time, certainly in, in Council of Ministers, is um, developers thinking that they understood and thinking that everything was clear and then obstacles appear that uh, were unexpected. Uh, I mean, I know it's it's a very difficult thing to, mm. to be able to guarantee that you have considered all these potential obstacles and overcome them, but uh, presumably um, some level of thought has gone into where the potential obstacles are going to be and how, how they can potentially be overcome. Yeah, and, and again, this, this comes back to this scheme is about funding support. This isn't about getting over the planning hurdles and planning difficulties people may encounter or some of the complexities there. There are other pieces of work going on inside what we're referring to as the built environment reform program that, that are trying to smooth out some of those hurdles. Uh, but the one thing I think we can guarantee is this scheme will throw up things we haven't thought about, we haven't expected, and we will have to deal with that, I think, as, as and when they arise. But quite a lot of thought has gone into the scheme. Uh, there's been a lot of effort, a lot of time uh, put in by a lot of people to try and get this as right 
right as it can be. Uh, but I think you're right, Phil, inevitably things will come out of the woodwork that we didn't anticipate, that we didn't expect. Uh, and again, actually, I'm quite confident the Department uh, Enterprise has the ability to to respond to things like that quite well. We do it on a regular basis with our other schemes and with other work that goes on in the department. So uh, again, I, I'm confident that when we encounter those challenges, and I say when because it is inevitable, I think that we will be able to respond appropriately. Andrew? I, I think the, the, the key thing and the key thing we're talking around is, is risk. Um, and, and we accept that there's there's an element of risk with the scheme, but but I think that's that's actually you know, analogous to the risk of developing brownfield sites. Uh, and often the very reason that, that they haven't been developed is because there are there are unknowns. There are certain unknowns, you know, whether it be contaminated land, old buildings, derelict things, asbestos, wherever that wherever that may be, that creates a risk for developers and and just bumps it to the bottom of the list and. and but, but from an island perspective, you know, from a, from an economy and from a social benefit perspective, you know, these sites have real, have tremendous potential value. So I think we go into our eyes with our eyes open that there's potential risk. Things may change, things may get thrown up. However, you know, we are hopefully going to be dealing with experienced developers. And if we need to come back and if we need to change things, then then I'm sure the department will have an open open approach to that. And the other side to all this, of course, is uh, because again. Um, as you know, um, Minister, you've you've been there long enough to realise that the, the the general public is a fairly fickle uh, beast. And on the one hand, they'll be very concerned about the thought of handing over large sums of cash, and then on the other hand, they'll be concerned that it's incredibly difficult for the developer to actually get the the, the cash in the first place. And government is artificially putting up obstacles, but the developers. For the sorts of schemes that you're talking about, they must surely they must realise that when public money is being used, uh, there's a, a far greater level of scrutiny going to be required than uh, if it was just a loan that uh, the particular developer had got from a bank or or, or or however they wish to progress their scheme. Public money just has that exponentially large amount of, of scrutiny on, on every way that it's spent, particularly when it's going in large chunks to uh, uh, fairly wealthy uh, companies. Yeah, it, it can be a challenge balancing those two out. Uh, I think it's fair to say that uh businesses that do engage with the department on any of our schemes uh, are aware of the terms and conditions that we apply. We know we produce a report for Timwald every year that lists the sort of support that's being provided under the, the Enterprise Act. So the, the public scrutiny side of this, uh, I think, is, is accepted. Um, this is a scheme that's going to Timwald, so obviously there'll be an open debate, and no doubt after the first round is opened, closed and assessed, there'll be more questions on the floor. I think anyone going into this knows that, that that's the case, especially when you're talking about a significant uh, funding amounts, which is what we could be talking about here. Um, it, it's it's challenging. It is. There's there's no two ways about it. But like I said, like I said, and like Andy said, I think we're going into this with our eyes open. I think we'd expect any of anyone else making applications to be as well. And the department has always tried to be as open as we can with anyone that comes forward. To be completely honest with them, that you know this is likely to garner some scrutiny in Timwald in in Keys. We are likely to get questions. People are going to want to know what's happening with these sites. So we you know if, if you're making these applications and you're committing to developing one of these sites with government support, I think people will expect to see progress as well. And I think all of that will be built into the scheme as well in terms of the offer letters that will go out and so you're right I think that people that are entering into these kind of agreements when it involves public money I think you have to expect a high level of public scrutiny it just comes with the territory and of course the other element of this is uh, on any of these uh, really quite uh, significant sites many of which are in the heart of uh, Douglas um, the public will also be thinking well actually 
you know, twenty-five percent of the money going into this development is ours. Therefore, we have every right, and in fact, more rights to comment on what we believe to be. What on earth are they doing here? <laughs> this ugly thing. How how could this possibly have ever got planning permission? Um, so you 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 may well end up having having uh, an element of that in in this as well, where where the general public, I mean, generally, you know, I think they have a, an absolute right to make comment about uh, these uh, the, these sorts of developments. I think my experience so far of the, the planning process is people already take very much uh, the opportunity to, to make themselves heard. Uh, I don't think this will be any different. Uh, I think there may be some slightly higher profile for these particular planning applications that go through that, that process, which again is entirely separate to this, uh, but I, I don't see that having any uh, material impact on the level of public interest. I think when buildings go up nearby, uh, when they are in higher profile areas, higher profile sites, they tend to attract a lot more public comment anyway, irrespective of who it is that's developing or funding them. And uh, I know Isle of Man government generally has had support from uh, people, I forget the, the man's name, the, from the Northern Powerhouse that was over for the government conference. Um, uh, he, he, he has been or has a proven track record of developing uh, inner city brownfield sites in, in parts of Northern England. Um, so, so you are getting good advice from people who know what they're talking about as well. Uh, yeah, I think it was good to talk. I think it was Henry Merrison you're Absolutely, talking about. It was yeah. good to talk to Henry when he came over, actually, as part of the conference. He had some really useful insights into what, what's worked in areas he's more familiar with. Uh, and generally, it's a similar kind of uh, concepts that we're talking about here. It's leveraging private sector inve- investment off public sector uh, uh, pump priming or investment or preparation work. It's how you encourage people, I think, to do things themselves rather than necessarily government handing money out. Uh, it, it's a lot more complex, I think, than anybody would like it to be. But it, it seems like the kind of things we're talking about doing on the island are things that have already worked reasonably well elsewhere. Um, so so then, Minister, I, I, I referred to you at, as Minister at the start of the programme, but maybe Ministers is, is a, a more appropriate uh, term. Um, how, how is that working out? It's busy. Uh, can't tell a lie on that one. Um, hopefully me wearing two hats is only a short-term uh, fix, really. It's just to try and provide a bit of continuity and stability, I think, across the, the two departments. Um, it's a challenge, uh, but I'm quite happy to say, you know, I've got really good teams in, in both departments, really good leadership teams, good political teams and good political support. Uh, so it's... Uh, People often think, you know, it's the minister that makes all these decisions and, and does everything. But, you know, yourself, Phil, it's, if you've got a team around you, actually, you can rely on them and lean on them for, for support and help as well in terms of decision making or input into policy or whatever it may be. So it's not as much of a challenge, perhaps, as I, I originally thought it might have been. Um, but it's, uh, it's definitely a lot of work and it's definitely meant some other things that I was working on uh, have taken a slight back seat. Uh, but that is, I think, the nature of the beast. I know uh, Chris Robertshaw, um, when he was uh, MHK for Douglas East, uh, often trotted out this idea that all you needed was was the chief minister and three ministers, <laughs> um, and these ministers would be de- in, in charge of super departments, and then they would have deputy ministers to to help them out. Um, effectively, I mean, it's it's not quite how uh, Chris Robertshaw envisaged, but this is a, a deputy minister role, pr- probably as big a deputy minister role as as anyone would care to to have. Um, you're you're reasonably confident that you're you are still able to keep that the overview that you need in each department to to make the right decisions. I think I think so. Um, like I say, this is only intended, I think, as a, a short-term measure at this stage, so we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, at the moment, I think it's it's definitely 
doable to keep an oversight of everything that's going on and again that's largely because of the teams and the people I think that are working in both departments to keep things moving uh, to keep things happening in some ways the agency structure within DFE helps a lot as well because there's a lot of private sector input. There's a lot of people there that actually are doing a lot of the policy work that maybe in another department would be getting done by, by politicians. Um, so in some ways that's quite positive. And on the health side, obviously, it's not an operational department anymore. So Manx Care are running the health service, they're running Nobles, they're running the, the care element and the healthcare element. And so that does take a bit of pressure off again from, a, I think, in the olden days where the Department of Health was running everything. I think if that was the case today, doing this would be near or impossible. But because of the structures, I think, that exist in both departments, it, it is a, a kind of a unique situation where actually this, this can work uh, as a temporary measure. I think if I, I was doing this for too long, my wife would probably murder me. Um, but ultimately, it is, like I said, hopefully just a short-term thing, wearing two hats while uh, we get things stabilised and the chief can make decisions then about the long-term future, what he'd like to see. Do, do, have we have we got the right balance when it comes to uh, the whole... Uh, w- the, the role of a minister, um, you know, the, the there is a an, a tendency and an an encouragement, I, I would even say, um, up for, by Timbald members to, to to pull ministers back into the detail and into the locality of of their department, rather than focusing on the big picture um, leadership role, which ultimately the minister should be there to do, you know, set the the, the high-level policy and then leave the officers to deal with the detail. That's how it should work, I would have thought. There's a bit of both. I I do think as a minister you do need to have one eye on the detail. I mean, you need to have a good handle on your brief, ultimately. I mean, I'm here talking about a particular infrastructure scheme and you have to have an understanding of what it is you're asking Timwood for, how things are going to work. So uh, whilst I think you can rely on your officers to do a lot of the detail work, I think ultimately the buck stops with you as the minister. And so you do have to have a handle on that. Um, And I think it it is difficult, it is challenging, and and I don't think it's for everyone. That's the other thing. Uh, You know, this job is quite unique, I think. You know, yourself being an MHK is, is more of a way of life, I think, than just a job. It isn't something you can just turn off at any point so it, it is it, it's a, a, an interesting opportunity I think but no I, I think I would slightly disagree with these, with some people who say you know, all I do is the high level strategy and let my uh, my officers do everything else actually I think there's a, there's a risk in that approach because then you aren't quite as well sighted on things that are happening and then that leaves you exposed a bit to something has happened something goes wrong perhaps and you know the answer can't be I wasn't aware of that. It's not my job to, actually, in some respects. It is, uh, ultimately, the buck does stop with you. And we've seen that happen in the past where ministers have come undone when things have happened on their watch that perhaps they have, have not had as much sight over as they perhaps should have done. And in terms of your your dual appointment, um, is there any hint yet from the Chief Minister as to when, when this uh, this may come to an end? I think you have to ask the Chief Minister, to be honest. Um, I think when I uh, ha- accepted and I said I'd do this for a short time, I think we were talking, you know, it was a short-term appointment. Uh, I don't really know what the thought is at the moment. I think the key thing for me, um, not so much in, in DfE, but more over at Health, is to make sure the department has a bit of stability for for a period of time, given what's happened in, in recent weeks. So I'd, I'd like them to be able to settle in to to keep things moving uh, rather than risk appointing another person into one of these roles that actually turns out not to work for, for whatever reason. I think it's probably better that we do take a little bit of time to think about this, but ultimately these decisions aren't mine to make. These decisions will be for, for Alf to have a think about what he wants to do and actually who he wants to bring in. And there's also a question there, of course, around uh, 
who you do bring in. There's a lot of backbenchers, obviously, with, with no ministerial experience. There's a few that have some ministerial experience, but then it's about the mix of people as well. So, as you know yourself, it's not a simple question to answer. Uh, maybe it looks simple from the outside looking in, but it's it's far more complicated, I think, than anyone would like it to be. In the, the Tim Mould question uh, that uh, I think it was Tim Glover had put down, the emergency question, talking about the uh, the, the, the departure of uh, Rob Collister, um, I, I rem- I, one of the men, members, I, I, I can't remember exactly who it was now, said, uh, is, is there a problem for the, the chief minister that there's, there's not enough uh, uh, potential people to pick from? Um, that, that's quite a harsh thing, to, to, to uh, harsh judgment on the, the 16 members of the House of Keys that are, uh, are not currently ministers, I would have thought. Yeah, I think I can't remember who said that, but I think it was maybe an unfortunate choice of words from. I think it was a backbencher actually that that threw that in, um, which you know, it's interesting to hear politicians essentially criticising their own ability. I thought that was a bit strange, mm. uh, but uh, no, it's uh, it's not really my place to comment on any of that. And ultimately, there is this now independent inquiry going on uh, that the chiefs referred to. So I think all of that stuff really needs to be dealt with by the appropriate channels, and we'll just have to wait and see. It's my job, I think, to uh, just keep the ship steady while all this stuff goes on in the background. And and elsewhere and then hopefully there will be a resolution in in due course hopefully in quite short order and then we can look at how we move on a nice christmas present perhaps uh, absolutely i mean it would be it would be fantastic if there was going to be a resolution by christmas um i say it's entirely out of my hands really it's up to all the other various processes that are going on now around us and have you any particular preferences of uh, having now been able to 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 ride two horses at the same time is there is there a particular horse that you favor or uh, i think i'd love to be in the department of home affairs actually at this stage oh, right. um, <laughs> no uh, in all seriousness uh, like i've said both dfe and, and health are they've got really good uh, teams in them and i think there's a lot of opportunity in both departments so inside health i mean you, you've seen the department plan the amount of work that's going on there around uh, reforming health care around residential and nursing care around access to gps everything that's come up really over the last 12 months there's there's a lot of work to do there inside dfe you've got employment law reform we've got work permit reform there's uh, immigration uh, queries there's workforce issues there's how do you grow the population how do you create jobs both departments have got a phenomenal amount of work ahead of them and really i'm more than happy to pursue either uh, of those uh, going forward so from my perspective it is very much a case of i'm um, stepping in to do a job that needs to be done um but ultimately like i said we'll have to wait for all the other processes to settle out and find out what the chief's thinking is then more longer term to see where i eventually may end up and of course the 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 big um issue of the day which is affecting many people at the moment is the the cost of living crisis and i suppose uh, talk of, of government uh, uh, throwing £10 million into, into developers' pockets at a time when people are really struggling to pay for the basics. Um, it's quite hard uh, for, for people who are in, in, in difficult circumstances financially when they hear these sorts of figures being bandied around. Uh, and it's, it's hard to, to sort of connect that ultimately by getting these developments off the ground, potentially this is going to start resulting in more taxes coming in, which then will allow for government to, to, to provide greater support for those who need it. Yeah, it's not one or the other. Uh, so the government has, I think, invested a lot of money at the mo- uh, so far in the cost of living support. You've seen the electricity price freeze. There have been a number of payments made uh, in terms of... Uh, 
energy support payments, support payments to people on low incomes, payments to families. Uh, I think another round of that, I think the Treasury Minister promised uh, later this this month, or maybe December time, I think he was talking about. So there, there is more coming, I think, uh, on those. So there's a lot of uh, support actually being pushed out there in terms of cost of living. Uh, there's also a lot of business support as well. So we're looking at revising some of our schemes inside DfE around energy efficiency, around business advice and support. Uh, you'll have seen recently we've just relaunched the Domestic Events Fund to support local businesses to increase football in our towns and villages to get people out out and about as well as the love isle of man card again that's another government putting money straight into people's pockets uh, so they can then go out and, and enjoy themselves and actually have an evening out without worrying too much about about the cost uh, to them to them so all this stuff is going on around the cost of living anyway uh, i and, and this uh, this scheme around infrastructure shouldn't detract from that. But I think we have to acknowledge that if we want to have a vibrant uh, island and a great place to live and work in five years' time, actually we need to start investing in some of this stuff now. And that's where I think previous governments, not just here but across the water as well, have gone wrong. When they've entered these periods of difficulty in terms of uh, financial pressures on government, they've, they've paired back. And rather than paring back and, and hunkering down, I think the Chief Minister acknowledged that hunkering down is not going to solve our problems. We have to take a little bit of risk and we have to be looking to the future and say, well, how do we invest? How do we leverage the private sector to encourage them to invest so that in five years, actually, we're in a much better space than we were five years ago? And so it is a bit of both, uh, actually. So I wouldn't want people to think that government is doing this at the expense of not doing other things. Uh, this is definitely one part of a, a much more complicated puzzle. Uh, but the cost of living support that's already out there is still coming. It is still rolling out. Uh, we still have to make longer term decisions around energy pricing. It, all of that stuff is still very much in the mix. Because there is, a, I think, a, a miss conception perhaps that people think that uh, government is the same as as a business um, you know uh, oh, sorry a household um, and you know household can only spend the income that comes in uh, which is a you know it's a, a good uh, stricture for government to be controlled by um, but uh, government expenditure is different to household expenditure you, you can spend things in government which then result in more income coming back to government uh, in the medium to long term and you have to be thinking about it in, in the, that sort of investment uh, uh, sort of investment in the future sort of way. Yeah it, it, that's essentially right so sometimes government is spending money over here on the left hand and actually it's generating income over here on the right and that is one of the, the thinking behind these kind of schemes is the exchequer benefit from these this investment will exceed the investment we're putting in in the first place so we may be looking to spend up to 10 million pounds as a maximum but actually it may very well generate and it should generate uh, far more money than that coming back into government uh, coffers back into the, the broader economy as a result and that's generally how, how all the DfE schemes work actually is that whatever government is putting in uh, the intention is that we'll recover that within a set period of time normally five years uh, and actually then it goes on to generate more money uh, in the longer term so that that is something that's always at the back of your mind when you're spending public money actually are we getting value out of it and ultimately value for money is what matters rather than necessarily what is it costing me today and what value are we getting out of it well um, gentlemen i think i've certainly got value for money out of you on, on, on today's program so uh, uh, thank you both for, for sparing the time to come in great thanks very much thanks phil been a pleasure that was enterprise minister laurie hooper did he convince you the sites this scheme is aimed at have lain derelict for decades in some cases, so maybe this cash incentive will encourage progress? New houses and leisure facilities built on these prime town locations would certainly be welcomed by many. Please get in touch with Phil Gorn at manxradio.com and let me know your thoughts and views on this programme, and let me know what you would like me to talk about on future shows. 
But for now, I'm Phil Gorn, Gorn Amayus and Gaze Jack Rob. Thanks for listening. <laughs>